Good morning, Hill family. How are we doing this morning? Good. Good to see everyone. My name is Pastor Jimmy. It is a joy to be with you. If you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. If you don't have a Bible, and there should be one in the seat back in front of you, but I encourage everyone here to put your eyes on the text, please. Hebrews chapter 3 is where we will be. I want to say a quick thank you to everyone who was here yesterday helping in our, um, our work day at the church. We got a lot accomplished much of our hill behind us, so the fire department has been lovingly exhorting us to get cleared, got cleared. So thanks for everyone who did that. We got new mulch on the playground. We got a lot of done, so got a lot done. So thank you for your service to the hill. We appreciate you very much. Hebrews chapter 3 is where we will be. We'll be continuing on. If you haven't been with us, we typically uh, preach through books of the Bible. We, we love the Word of God, and we feel not only is the text important, but the way in which God gave us the text is important, so we typically like to start in chapter 1 of a book and work our way to the end and ride along with the Lord and see what He's doing in these, in these books and shape us and mold us as a church. So we have now made our way to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 is where we will pick up this morning. Now, it's been said that many start strong, but few finish well. I'm sure you guys have heard that saying or something like it before. I tried to think back on my life when I first saw this principle uh, played out, and it took me back to my middle school uh, track team. I had a friend of mine who I ran the 1,600 meters with, the mile with, who was really fast, who always beat me. And he didn't just beat me, he really beat everyone in the county. Um, He was a really good, or at least fast, uh, mile runner. But uh, though he seemed to always win, he had somewhat of an unorthodox, or maybe I could just say wrong, style of running long distance. Uh, my friend would typically, in every race, he would take off out of the starting block sprinting, as if he was running a 400 meter race. He would push himself extremely hard for the first two laps, and then he would, because of his fatigue, he would slow down to sometimes even crossing the finish line at a walk. But somehow, he seemed to always win. My friend had a lot of speed. He just had no endurance. Everyone knew this was a terrible way to run the mile. Like his coaches knew it, the fans knew it, he knew it. But, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? He kept winning. Because of his strong start, he was able to to, to get out so far in the lead in the first half of the race. It didn't really matter how slow he was in the end. He typically... He did finish every single race in first in the county. It was ugly, but it worked. But it worked at least in the county. Because then we went on to compete in a a regional meet where all the counties came together and things were different. So like the runners were much faster. And because of this, my friend, he had to, he had to, his strategy had to take off from from the starting blocks at a much faster pace and keep that pace up much longer in order to win. And this created a significant problem for him. It tested his endurance. Not only could he not hold his lead with the new competition in the regional meet, he didn't even finish the race. He stepped off to the side and couldn't even finish. His speed never translated to endurance. Without endurance, his start, no matter how strong it seemed to be, at the regional meet meant absolutely nothing. And this principle, it does play out in a lot of areas of life. Right? You guys could probably think of many examples, exercise plans, diet, trying to finally put a budget together and stick to it. No matter how much zeal, no matter how much equipment and workout gear you buy, 
Something comes along, right? Difficulty comes and you taper off when challenges and opposition arise. A strong start means nothing without endurance to the end. This morning, as we finish out the third chapter of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is going to zero in on this principle. But not in terms of a track race, not in terms of a diet, but in terms of our spiritual walk with the Lord. To start well spiritually but lack endurance to finish is a disastrous thing. And to illustrate this point, the author is going to reach back into a very famous Old Testament story and present it to us as by way of an illustration. It's a story that we all will probably know very well. And he does so again to paint a realistic portrait of the Christian life. Something we see over and over again in the book of Hebrews. The Christian life is a spiritual battle requiring much, much more than a strong start. True Christian faith endures to the end. So my main point this morning will be straightforward and then I want to get us in our text as fast as we can. It's this, that by exhorting one another to hold firm in the gospel, we guard our hearts from unbelief and endure to the end. By exhorting, encouraging one another to hold firm in the gospel, we guard our hearts from unbelief and therefore endure to the end. Hebrews chapter 3, you're going to hear it as I even read it. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7 down to the uh, verse 19. We're going to pick up actually the verse that's quoted here is the, is, is the, the next verse uh, that goes beyond my call to worship. I started in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 will be quoted here. And this is a very strong, straightforward text. And I want you to hear the word of the Lord this morning. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was, the, what, was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Father, a pointed, serious text of scripture this morning father guard my heart and mind in christ help me to be clear and god pray that the word would fall upon our hearts in such a way that we would 
not repeat the story that we read in Psalm 95. That we would, that none of us would leave here with an evil, unbelieving heart, putting us on a trajectory to fall away from the living God. We would recognize our need for Christ, cling to Him, and trust in the promises of the gospel to endure in the Christian faith. Holy Spirit, help us now. In your name we pray. Amen. As we've noted every week in our text, it's repetitive, but it's important. Hebrews is addressed to a group of Jewish believers experiencing hostility, pressure, persecution, and disdain by the culture around them. Much of that coming from Jewish persecution. And all of which is, is aimed at, at getting them to turn back from following Christ and to revert back to the old Jewish religion. And the author's approach has been very consistent. He, he, from his, really his theological treasure chest, he points us over and over again to the supremacy and the superiority of Jesus. Jesus truly is better. He is better than the angels. He is better than Moses. And in light of this truth, he warns this suffering church of not finishing, even though they seem to have started pretty well. Last week we were confronted with the superiority of Jesus, the Son, over Moses, the servant. And last week our text concluded with a call to stand firm to the end, which the author only furthers this morning. Through another strong warning to this church and really to every single one of us this morning. And we find here, I think, three movements in our text this morning. In verses 7 through 12, we're going to address a warning that comes from behind us. In verse 13, we're going to look at a remedy given amongst us. And then in 14 through 19, there is a call that is set before all of us. So first, a warning from behind, 7 through 12. As any faithful preacher does, the author of our text here, the preacher, is going to derive his point this morning from the text of Scripture. Specifically here, he's going to go to Psalm 95, a, a text every Jew was familiar with. It was a text that would have served as what we did this morning, as a call to worship many Sabbath evenings in the synagogue. And it contained a very direct warning regarding the disastrous story of the generation behind them who had been forbidden to enter the promised land due to their hard and unbelieving hearts. It's a story of a great start. Israel left Egypt strong, but they did not finish well. Before we deal with the text of Psalm 95, which is quoted here, I want you to notice the introductory phrase in verse 7. Look at it. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Now, contained in this simple phrase is embedded a, a rich theological conviction regarding the Word of God in front of us this morning. And something that really grounds what I'm doing this morning in preaching. By this one statement, the author's belief in the divine inspiration of the Scripture is made clear. God is the author of Scripture, brothers and sisters. While we know uh, that a real human author penned the words of Psalm 95 that is being quoted here, the phrase, as the Holy Spirit says, 
teaches us that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 1 Peter 1.21. As evidence here, the doctrine of, the insp- of inspiration teaches us that when we read the real words of men in this book, we are hearing, we are reading, we are studying the very Word of God to us. You want to hear God speak? Open your Bible. When the Bible is open, you can be sure the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. And this phrase also affirms the living nature of the Word. Verse 7 does not say, as the Holy Spirit said, which would not necessarily be wrong. That would be right. But in light of the living and active nature of God's Word, what was said thousands of years ago still speaks this morning. In the very next chapter of Hebrews, we're going to read how the Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Chapter 4, verse 12. So though 39 or 40 authors... You've got to figure out what you want to do with the book of Hebrews. I told you we don't know who wrote it. So if you think it's one of the 39 who wrote it before, then there's 39 others. If you think it's a new person, then it's 40. But though 39 or 40 human authors penned these words, they did so under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in such a way... That as we read it today, though it's written by men, it is the very Word of God to us. The psalmist wrote it, but the Holy Spirit speaks to us this morning. And since it is living and active, it speaks to us this morning with as much force as it does to the original audience. So with this embedded theology, the preacher now applies this most important text written to Israelites thousands of years ago to this congregation and to us this morning. In other words, the today, you're going to hear that phrase three times, the today of this psalm falls just as much in our laps as it did to this congregation. Let's read it again. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, because you guys remember last week, if you were here, this text here is in contrast to the faithfulness of Moses. This generation was faithless toward God. The call to... To not harden your heart is very clear here. And the words rebellion and testing in verse 8 help us really understand what this hardening entailed. The citation in, in, in here from Psalm 95 was quoted here in Hebrews. It was taken from the Greek translation known as the Septuagint. So if you've been following along in Hebrews and say they quote a passage in the Psalms, and then you go back and read it in your Bible and you say, man, that's the same thing, but the wording's different. Well, the author was quoting from the Greek Septuagint. Our Bibles that we have in the original were going to come from the Hebrew. All right? So there's going to be a little bit of nuance, flavor different, and we see that here. But the original, in the original language, the word rebellion is set forth uh, here as the word meribah. And it means that. And behind the word testing is the word masa. So in my ESV, if I was to go back to Psalm 95 and read it, the translation would read, Do not harden your hearts as at meribah, as on the day at masa in the wilderness. Now, why do I point this out? This is important because these two words, uh, rebellion and testing, point us back to Exodus chapter 17. You guys remember that when we went through the study of Exodus together. When the people ran out of water, 
And they began to quarrel with Moses. These are the exact words that were there. Moses asked them in chapter 17 of Exodus, verse 2, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? After this, he struck the rock, allowing water to flow. And then in chapter 17, verse 7, it says, He called the name of this place Masa, testing, and Mahabah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And what we know from verse 9 of Hebrews, in our text back in Hebrews here, is that this rebellion stemmed from a heart of unbelief. It's going to be repeated multiple times. And this is the sad reality of the Exodus account. After the people spent generations in slavery, after they saw the provision of God in Moses, after they witnessed the miraculous plagues on Pharaoh, after they stood under the pillar of cloud and fire and walked through the dry ground of the Red Sea, what did they say? They confessed to the Lord that they would obey Him and follow Him wherever He asked them to go. And yet when the first sign of difficulty arose, they questioned the goodness of God. They shook their fist at Him. And they asked the question, is the Lord God among us or not? They rebelled in their unbelief. In their hard, unbelieving hearts, we could see this in so many places, it it really does come to a climax with their refusal to believe God at the border of the promised land in Numbers 13. You know this story. God had ensured the people the promised land belonged to them. He would clear it out and cause them to possess it. This was literally the, 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 the reason why they left Egypt. So He could put them in a place in terms of the Abrahamic covenant where they would be a light to the nations. And what happened? Remember, they, they send spies. Spies go in and check out the land and they come back with a report. And they report that the land was flowing with milk and honey just as God said. They report it was a prosperous land. That was the report. But that's not all they said, right? At least the majority of the spies said the land was untakeable. The people were too great and large. Now, by itself, that statement made perfect sense. They were outnumbered. The people were big. On their own, they did seem like grasshoppers in the land. But they weren't on their own. God was with them. He had promised to go before them. And he had proven himself faithful every step of the way thus far. So their statement statement should have been unthinkable in light of the God whom they worshipped and the God whom they witnessed in the Exodus. God toppled the mightiest nation in all the earth, causing the Egyptians to literally give their possessions to the very people who used to be their slaves as they left. The people cried out to God and he rescued them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. So in light of who God had revealed Himself to be and what He had proven Himself to do, now to defy the Word of God and refuse to enter the promised land was the height of unbelief. God spells this out in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, where He said to Moses, How long will this people despise Me? How long will they not believe in Me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. God made clear that at the root of their hard, disobedience hearts was the damning cancer of unbelief. And this unbelief expressed itself in grumbling and quarreling and refusing to obey the Word of God in the face of God's continual grace and mercy towards them. Right? We cannot forget that between their, them leaving Egypt and refusing to enter the Promised Land was the Golden Calf Incident. 
where God had every right to wipe the people out, but instead He showed His, His mercy, His grace, His steadfast love. When they grumbled because they were hungry, God brought manna from heaven. It just fell from the sky. When they complained about being thirsty, He made water bust from a rock. In spite of God's great power, always continually on display, and despite of His overwhelming grace and mercy and His clear promise to protect them, they chose unbelief. Demonstrated through their disobedience at every single turn. And the result? They incurred God's judgment. That's what it says in our text. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Every Israelite over the age of 20, except Joshua and Caleb, who believed the Lord, were not allowed to enter the promised land. They would live out their days and be buried in the wilderness. Disobedience flows from a hard heart. And a hard heart grows out of the soil of unbelief. Now why this story? Why take these Jewish Christians down memory lane like this? Verse 12 tells us, put your eyes there. Applying this text directly to this small persecuted congregation, he warns them, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Israel sinned because they did not believe God. And their disobedience brought the wrath of God. Israel started well, but they did not finish. Be careful, church, lest you fall in their footsteps, the author is saying. It's possible to begin well, but never finish. It's possible to experience an exodus of sorts, but when trouble arises, throw it all away due to unbelief. Take care could be translated, watch out or look out. Speaking to the seriousness of this warning. And this warning is to watch out specifically for an evil, unbelieving heart which leads us to fall away or literally leave the faith, walking away from the living God. Unbelief carried serious consequences. But let's not forget the theme, Jesus is better. Because the fact that Christ is better than Moses, and that means that the loss associated with rejecting Christ is, is far greater, or might we say far worse. The unbelief of Israel resulted in them missing the, the promised land and the blessings it afforded them. But rebellion against Christ forfeits the greater blessing of eternal life and true rest in Him, as we're going to see spelled out next week in the end of chapter, the beginning of chapter 4. To fall away from Christ is to fall away from the living God. And chapter 10, verse 31 tells us to fall away from the living God is a fearful thing, it says. For to fall away is to in fact fall into the hands of the living God who will judge justly. There's a timeless urgency in this text we are confronted with. The today of verse 8 and again in verse uh, verse 15. It's meant to shout at us. And we cannot overlook the fact that these words are, are aimed at a group of people claiming to be Christians. This man is not preaching this text out on the street corner somewhere to people who confess to be atheists and far from God. No, he's, he's preaching this to a gathered assembly of people who profess to be Christians. The author refers to them as brothers. 
In light of the wilderness generation, the author is pleading with this congregation to perform a serious heart check. What is an evil, unbelieving heart? It's a heart that refuses to trust God. It's a heart that refuses to take Him at His word. It's a heart that will not follow Him in obedience. An evil, unbelieving heart is what all of us possess apart from Christ. To use the language of Ephesians 2, it's a spiritually dead man's heart. It's the heart that has never experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in conversion. If you remember back to a few weeks ago with our first warning passage in Hebrews, we talked about how Hebrews is a wonderful book, but there's some difficult things because of these strong warning passages. And I, I talked about... Um, that these warning passages serve a twofold purpose in the book. They serve first to arrest the soul of any who may be confessing Christ, but who have not truly embraced Christ. In this sense, the warnings serve to awaken the one who may be among the believers, but is who is not one of the believers. Secondly, though, these warnings serve as a means of grace in preserving those who truly do belong to Christ. They serve as a means of us enduring in the faith. So the author offers this warning to this suffering community being tempted to turn back. And by so doing, he is pleading with them and with us to check our hearts and make sure that we don't make any mistakes that the Israelites did. What was that? They didn't believe. They didn't truly trust the promises of God. Salvation for them proved to be more about escaping bad circumstances than surrendering to Yahweh. They wanted out of Egypt for sure. But they did not necessarily want God. Remember the call of the Lord to Pharaoh so many times. Let my people go that they may what? Be free? Let my people go that they may worship me. They wanted to be let go. They just didn't really want to worship the Lord. They didn't want to surrender their lives to the Lord. And this is a very important distinction we need to make. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong. There are lots of benefits associated with being a Christian. But wanting the benefits of Christ is not the same as wanting Christ. There are many people in many churches... Maybe some here this morning who call themselves Christians simply because they simply they, they wanted an escape from a bad situation. But people, dead people, want their lives to improve. Spiritually dead people don't want to experience bad circumstances. You may be, people may be involved in Christian community. As much as the Israelites were, but yet not truly belong to Christ. But the gospel message is not just about escape. The gospel message is a call to intimacy with Christ. It's a call to submission to a king. It's a call to a life of surrender and worship, no matter the circumstances before us. It's a recognition that you, in fact, have an evil, unbelieving heart. And that you, in fact, cannot worship 
God rightly until He does something about your heart. It's a recognition that Christ is our only hope. Look, we must guard ourselves from presenting the Christian faith as some sort of easy, just believism where Jesus is nothing more than fire insurance. Or we confess the truth of who Christ is. We confess the truth of what He did on the cross, but it has no real bearing on our life. Why do I know that's deadly? Because the Bible says that even the demons believe those things. And they believe them with more theological rightness than anyone in this room does. They know who Christ is. They know why Christ came. They know what Christ accomplished. But they refuse to submit to Him. They refuse to obey Him. They refuse to believe His promises and live for Him. Biblically speaking, what is the evidence of true faith? It's present faithfulness. It's obedience. Perfect obedience? Of course not. We're sinners. But a person who professes to know Christ but shows no fruit in terms of obedience to Christ I want to say this with as much grace, but as much directness as I can. You have no warrant, biblically speaking, to call yourself a Christian. Evidence of Christianity is less about what happened at a moment in the past as it is about what's going on in your heart right now, this morning. If we're not studying the Word of God, if we're not loving God's people, if we're not confessing sin, if we're not submitting our lives to Christian community, then I can't stand here this morning and say you're not a Christian. I don't have that authority. But I can stand this morning and say you have no biblical warrant to call yourself such. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul applies the same story of Israel to the church in Corinth. And he says, "For I, beginning in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud." They all passed through the sea. They all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate of the same spiritual food. They all drank of the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed, that, that, that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Skip down to verse 12. He says, we know this verse. But when you think about this verse in context of what he just said. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Why are you here this morning? Why are you here this morning? Are you here because you believe that coming here and worshiping and being a part of the praying and the preaching and the fellowship will somehow earn you a place with God? Are you here this morning because you know that you have an evil, unbelieving heart and that Christ and His work in the Gospel is the only thing that transforms us? And He is our hope. He is everything to us. Are you confessing Christ this morning? And what I mean by that is, are you living for Christ? Have you confessed Him as your Lord and Savior? And then are you living the Christian life? Not perfectly. Come to my house and live with me. You can figure that out really quickly. 
But are you walking in the way that the Bible calls us to walk as Christians? Confessing our sins. Confessing Christ. Finding God in His Word as the Holy Spirit says. Submitting yourself to Christian community. And walking somewhere with a group of Christians. This is what the Bible calls Christianity, brothers and sisters. That's the warning from the past. But there is a remedy among us as well in verse 13. And following this clear warning, the author, he does give us something of a a remedy for us not following in the footsteps of Israel. Verse 13 begins with a strong contrast. It says, Be careful, check your own heart so that you know, so that none of you possess an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. How do we check our hearts? How do we combat a heart that is prone to respond in unbelief? Strong contrast. But... Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The word exhort can be translated encourage or comfort one another. It's actually uh, the same word where we derive the description of the Holy Spirit as the comforter. So the remedy for an evil, unbelieving heart comes by way of strong comfort, by encouragement, by exhortation within the body of Christ. We are to exhort one another. And we are to do so daily. In fact, do it today, he says. Emphasizing the seriousness of this challenge. Friends, I I want... Do you hear the implied understanding regarding Christianity here? It's so important. We think biblically. Because as a pastor, I talk to lots of people about their faith. And one thing I notice is how many people are quick to call themselves Christians and yet their lives look nothing like how a Christian is defined on the pages of the New Testament. It's a common thing for people to just make up their own version of the Christian life. I'm a Christian, but church is my outdoors. I'm a Christian because I do my own thing. and I just I do my own thing. I have my own way of doing it. And while sometimes statements like that are made due to real hurtful situations people have experienced from churches, we should mourn those. But the solution is not to allow them to disobey the clear teachings of the Bible as if we know better than what God says. Friends, faithful Christianity is not to be done alone. We're sinners who are often deceived by our sin. It's assumed on the part of the author these people had regular access to one another's lives. And each shared in this responsibility with one another of encouraging and exhorting one another so they would not be deceived by their sin. The author is reminding us that encouragement and exhortation is a community project. It's a mutual endeavor amongst God's people. And it's one which God has ordained as a means of our endurance in the faith, brothers and sisters. And again, this phrase, that none may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, is a reference directly from Psalm 95, verse 8. Reflecting on the sin of the wilderness generation. A callous, hard heart cannot hear and therefore obey the admonitions of the Lord. It becomes hard and callous towards those stabs of the conscience that bring about repentance. When we're isolated, when we're on our own, 
we suppress those stabs of the conscience. And over time, the heart becomes hard. And that leads to a person being deceived by sin. Sin actually blinds people from seeing the true danger of sin. Sin is deceitful. It's tricky. And that shouldn't, that shouldn't shock us, right? Satan is a deceiver, the Bible says. So we need other people to encourage us and exhort us so we may see and not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this means at least two things. You can't live the Christian life apart from biblical community. Apart from other believers who are following Jesus. But that's not enough, right? Like we can all get together and just hang out. No, the gospel, secondly, the gospel must be present. This is what we're to exhort and encourage one another with. This looks like reminding each other of the truth. It means focusing our words on the gospel. And by the gospel, I, I mean who God is. Who we are. How glorious and beautiful Christ is. And the hope that awaits each of us because of Christ. Look, when the gospel is not present in a community... Sin can deceive us to believing the aim of the Christian life is simply external conformity. We make sin just an external thing. Don't do this, don't do that. Act this way, don't act like this. And we got the Christian faith down. When the gospel is not present, the goal of Christianity becomes conformity to the life of other people. The righteousness that we're aiming for is Whatever community we're part of. Well, I'm better than them. I should do a little better because they do. This misses the whole truth of the gospel. We can come to church, pray, partake in religious activity, and conform our lives to some sort of moral standard, believing we are true believers, though we have never been confronted with the sin, our sin before a holy and righteous God. There are lots of people and lots of churches who are deceived by believing by sin, believing that their actions, their actions and their way of life can make them right before God. It's not the gospel, brothers and sisters. The gospel is clear. We're sinners in desperate need of God's grace. I have no hope for you. You have no hope for me. Christ is our hope. We must confess our sin to Him. We must cling to Him and live for Him. So to combat this deception in our churches and in our hearts, we exhort and encourage one another with the gospel. We should always be pointing each other to the glory and majesty of God, His righteousness and justice. And we should be quick to see our sin and confess it. And we should be constant in our confession of our reliance upon Christ alone. He is our only hope. He's everything we need. We must forever remind each other of the riches of our hope in Christ. That He is our sure and steadfast anchor. And this should happen within so many ways within the body. Like it should happen in community group life. It should happen in smaller D group settings. It should happen one-on-one -on -one in our homes. But we also do this every single time we gather. That's what we're doing this morning. Our greetings, our prayers, our preaching, our singing are all means of communal exhortation in the gospel, brothers and sisters. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul gives a similar command to the Colossian church when he exhorts them, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How? Singing songs and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I want to be vulnerable with you this morning. 2018, I, 2017, we move here with my family. 2018, we start the Hill Church. Moving into that next year, I have not even been here a year. And I get a call at 5 o'clock in the morning that my dad is gone. No, no thought he, was, he wasn't sick, nothing going on in his life. No chance to say goodbye. Nothing. He's gone. And I have to wake my kids up or wait for them to wake up. With this dreading reality, I now have to tell my children that their granddad is gone. The man that I pick up the phone to every time I need some advice. If I can be honest with you, I left. I went home to Atlanta for a funeral. I didn't want to be at And in my heart was, I want to quit. I don't want to be a pastor anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go sit in the corner and just sulk. I don't even know how I can do this. I don't want to do this anymore. But by God's grace, He moved me forward to come back a few weeks later. And the endurance that I found to press on, brothers and sisters, wasn't through some... You know, great moment with the Holy Spirit here on my knees praying where He just awakened me to the reality of press on. It wasn't that. It was through text messages from you. It was from emails from you. And it was from sitting right there on that front row and hearing the saints singing behind me. It was me sitting on that front row and listening to elementary school kids singing, Christ is enough. It was me standing up here giving the Lord's Supper and looking at each of you in the face and knowing that you're going through difficult things as well and holding a wafer in a cup and saying Christ is enough. It was the mutual exhortation and the encouragement of the gospel. This is the church, brothers and sisters. We are going somewhere together. We're going to eternity with Christ. We need each other. This is how we endure This is a means God has given us in the gospel. One another. Do you see it? Do you see the treasure of it? When we commit our lives to Christ, we commit our lives to Christ's people. And we help each other. Don't you ever underestimate the power of you standing here on a Sunday morning singing praise to God. Don't you ever underestimate you struggling with your sin, confessing your sin, and walking up and taking the Lord's Supper in front of people. Don't you ever underestimate you not wanting to come to church. I'm tired. Had a hard week getting up and coming in that door. This is the grace of God in Christ Jesus and the body of Christ. This is the remedy God has given us as brothers and sisters together. Encourage and exhort one another in the gospel, brothers and sisters. There's a call, though. There's a call before us at the end here. The author is going to issue this call to endurance. It's something we should not be unfamiliar with at this point. 
He says, we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Some translations read beginning of our confidence or trust which we began with. I think both are helpful. It's saying the confidence, trust you had in God when you first believed. That you must hold firm to the end if you are to persevere. Now, we should be clear, Christians go through seasons of doubt. I just talked about one. Honestly, a faith that never doubts might not be real. Because we live in a fallen world. We're fallen people. But Bible-believing, word-saturating, Holy Spirit-filled people press through their doubts. The confidence and trust we had when we first began, we hold firm until the end. Now, I want you to see the construction of this sentence because it's very important. It says, we have come to share, partake in Christ if we endure. It does not say, if we endure, we come to partake and share in Christ. In other words, endurance is presented here as evidence that we do in fact partake in Christ, that we do in fact share in Christ. And therefore, a lack of endurance would be evidence someone does not share in Christ, has not partook in Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe that the work that God began in us, He will bring to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. I believe that. I believe that those who belong to Christ will endure. He will hold us fast. I believe that. But while God ignites our faith in conversion, perseverance, through, though fueled and motivated by God's grace, is our responsibility. It's in our hands. We cannot keep ourselves. God keeps us. But His keeping comes through Him empowering us to hold our confidence firm to the end. We have to be biblical here. God will keep you, Christian. If you belong to Christ, God will keep you. But God's keeping you demands you hold fast. It demands you endure. The author is going to go on to ask six questions here in three groups of pairs. The first question is answered by the second question in each pair. And I think each really serves as really a soul-searching heart check for these suffering Christians, calling them to persevere in all of us. It says, Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Answer, Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? In other words, everyone who received the judgment of God began, began strong by witnessing the glorious rescue of the Lord from Egypt who witnessed His hand in the wilderness. Then in verse 17 He asked, And with whom was He provoked for forty years? Answer, Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? The anger of God came as a result of those who did not believe God and tested Him, even after they left Egypt with a great confession. They sang the song of Moses with him. Verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Answer, but those who were disobedient. Their hard, rebellious hearts expressed themselves through disobedience. The author concludes in verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Notice how this phrase, hardness of heart, it shows up some five times is clearly said to result from unbelief. 
That's the author's point, brothers and sisters. And I was thinking about how we can maybe press this point forward. And I I, want to be gospel-centered, but I don't want to try to pull back the force of this text because it's the Holy Spirit spoke it this way. And I thought about the the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils. Jesus presents four different types of soil upon which seed falls. We know this parable, right? One of them kind of has no start. Seed lands, the bird immediately devours it. But brothers and sisters, the other three all have a start. They all produce something. But only one endures. Only one produces grain. He finishes his saying, Jesus does, by saying, He who has ears, let him hear. A Christian life is is not just about a good start. It's about a start that produces a life that endures to the end. Because the Christian life is a life fixed on the gospel, brothers and sisters. So I want you guys to hear this morning. It's the same thing I laid upon my heart this week is... What is the author of Hebrews setting before us here? And he's going to do it over and over again. He's going to challenge something that I think we struggle with in our churches today. And that is a disconnecting of a confession with a life. We tend to say to see people who are not walking with Christ at all And they say, are you a Christian? And they say, yes, I confessed when I was six that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Could that be true? Absolutely it could be true. And maybe a few years from now, the the disciplining hand of the Lord will bring them back and they were saved at six. But we don't get to, in that moment of them walking in disobedience, say, yes, you're a Christian because you made a confession. The Bible's clear. Fruit of the Christian life is present obedience, brothers and sisters. And if we allow anyone to confess Christ who's not walking with Christ and give them the assurance of their salvation, we're allowing them to be deceived by sin. We're called to confess Christ and to live for Christ because He is King. He is Lord. He is beautiful in every way. So brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this morning. Everyone here this morning. As this text was laid upon this original audience to lay it upon ourselves with a heart check. Do you know Christ? Do you know Him? Not as someone who helps you get out of a bad situation. Not as someone every time when things go wrong you go back to like a genie in the bottle, but the Lord of your life who you're willing to say, I don't care what goes wrong in my life. He's everything to me. Because I've seen myself in my sin and what I deserve and I know Christ has died for me and I want Him daily. Is that you this morning? 
And brothers and sisters, exhort one another. Encourage one another in that truth. Encourage me. Exhort me so I won't be deceived by sin. That you won't be deceived by sin. That we keep Christ and the gospel at the center of who we are as a church. Let's pray. I'm going to give us a moment to reflect before we pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we know that certain texts come at us in different ways. But we know that you're a good God. We need to hear every one of them. God, I pray for my heart and everyone in this room this morning. That we would consider our hearts this morning. Have we come to a place of my problem is not that I make wrong decisions. My problem is not that I make bad choices. My problem is not that I need to do better in certain areas of my life. My problem is I have an evil, unbelieving heart that is pulling me and leading me to fall away from the living God. And I cannot keep myself. But God, save me, help me, keep me through the work of Christ, through His life, death, and resurrection. Father, if anyone here who does not know You this morning, might You impress that reality upon their heart? Might they see Your Son? See the life that You call them to and the beauty of who He is and might they receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ today? God, for us who are believers this morning, Yes, this is a warning passage, but God, we should leave encouraged. God, that you warn us and you guard us. Yes, you do, but then you give us brothers and sisters to walk with us. You give us a gospel that not only allows us to escape from the penalty and the pain of sin, but gives us daily intimacy with you. It gives us a sure and steadfast hope that presses beyond anything that could go wrong in this life. And God, help us to remind each other of that. Help us to be a church that continually pushes each other to follow Christ, knowing that it's a means that you've given us to endure. Thank you, God, that we must hold firm, but we hold firm because you hold us fast. God, we thank you. I thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Even as we sing this last song, might you press it down deeper into our heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.